Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we begin a new series through the books of Colossians and Philippians. You might notice that that's not the Scripture reading this morning. We're actually in the last half of Acts 28. The rationale for this is that this is the historical backdrop and background to the book of Colossians, to the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul wrote the prison epistles while he was in house arrest in Rome between the years 60 and 62 AD. So while he's penning the words of Colossians, this is his context and this is his situation. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and they wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, however, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They, the Jewish leaders, replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere, they're talking against this sect. They arranged to meet with Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, and his witness was composed of two factors, explaining about the kingdom of God, one, and two, from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. What a way to end a sermon. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become hard and calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation 
has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in Rome in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he did so with all boldness and without hindrance. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, a few weeks ago, the college football world received some very sad news. If any of you who are college football fans probably know what I'm talking about, a few weeks ago we learned about the untimely, tragic, premature passing of the much-beloved Mississippi State football coach Mike Leach, otherwise known as the Pirate, okay? So if any of you have been watching bowl games for the past couple weeks, you might have seen various coaches with a Pirate pin placed on their shirt in honor of Mike Leach, the beloved coach. How, how would one describe this coach? He was very colorful, very eclectic, had a flair for the dramatic, all kinds of things like that. Well, there was a documentary that was re-aired over the past couple weeks that kind of focuses on that and kind of symbolizes everything that Coach Leach was as a coach. And it goes back many years. I'll be interested to see how many people know about this. It is now known as the Cotton Bowl Caper, for those of you who are in the know, and I encourage you after the sermon sometime today, you can watch this through ESPN. It's become so, so famous. So let's, let's rewind. This will relate to the sermon, I promise you. Let's rewind back to 1999. Mike Leach is the offensive coordinator for the Oklahoma Sooners, okay? And the prime is pumped for an amazing Texas OU game at the Cotton Bowl. It's Wednesday night before the game. OU knows they are at, outmatched by the Longhorns. And so Coach Leach convenes his assistant coaches, and they come up with a plan, a scheme. They're going to engage in some chicanery, okay? They're going to try to get a, a leg up on Texas. And so after they meet, they decide they're going to come up with a dummy play chart, a, tum, a dummy playlist that they're going to try to plant in Texas's view and see if Texas would buy it. This is just what Mike Leach does. So he gets his coaches together. They spent a lot of time on this. They came up with a very detailed, very specific, believable play script, okay? Front and back, okay? And the plays would closely match what OU was going to do, but with some twists. So if OU was going to go right with a pass, they would indicate on this dummy play sheet that they would go left. Okay, so they come up with this sheet. So the plan was they were going to give it to a player, and the player would walk out on the field a couple hours before the game. 
in plain sight of the Texas sideline. He would have this dummy play sheet. He would put it in his waistband. He would start walking. It would slip beneath his waistband and fall to the ground. And the OU player would just continue on his way to see what the Texas sidelines would do. I'm sad to say the Texas sidelines ate it up. (laughs) So it's hard to believe this really happened. So the OU player has his dummy play sheet. He walks out. He tucks it in his waistband. It falls to the ground. He continues on the way. There is a Texas graduate football assistant 20 yards away, sees everything. As soon as the OU guy passes, he just stands there. He looks around. He picks up the play sheet. He gives it to an assistant coach named Tom Herman, who later became an assistant coach. They all look at it. They take it to the Texas defensive coordinator. They convene, and they come to a conclusion. No one would put the time in to a detailed play sheet like this just to trick us. There's no way. They're interviewing the Texas defensive coordinator. He said he was totally distracted, completely consumed by this play sheet. It was going to dictate everything he did in the first half. First half. So then they show you plays from the game. First series, Texas is throwing the ball. I'm sorry, OU is throwing the ball. You have never seen wide receivers so open. They're interviewing the players. They said, we've never seen wide receivers this open. OU goes out to an immediate 17-0 lead. They're interviewing the Texas defensive coordinator. He's like, I don't know what's going on. He's looking at the play sheet. He figures it out. He crumples it up and throws it in the trash can. Texas comes roaring back and wins the game. Not everything is always as it seems. Texas thought they had the key to destroying Oklahoma when actually the opposite was the case. When the Jews had Paul arrested in Jerusalem, they thought they had the key to stifle and stop the spread of the gospel when in fact the opposite was the case. There is nothing worse the Jews could have done if their concern was stopping the gospel than having the apostle Paul arrested. Because here he is now in Rome. He has gotten a Roman escort to the seat of the world's power base where he is administrating the entire Gentile church under the full protection of Rome. It's it's absolutely amazing. The context of Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, do you know how Paul had the freedom and the capacity to write these books? He's renting his own house in Rome. That's how good he's got it. He's chained to a Roman soldier. They would switch every four hours. But Paul has so much freedom. He can bring disciples to him. He can send disciples out. He can get all his materials. Honestly, there could not have been a better place for the apostle Paul to be 
than in Rome right now in 60 AD administrating, caring for so many of the churches that he had planted on his missionary journeys. That's the context of the book of Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon. Imagine Paul in your mind's eye. I'm thinking that maybe it was a nice house. You know, he had plenty of room for people to come and stay with him as he administrate, administrated things. Look at verse 14. This is, this is interesting. Very subtle. Okay? Acts 28, 14. And so, what pronoun is there? So, we came to Rome. Did Paul write the book of Acts? No. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Paul's disciple, Luke. Luke wrote the book of Luke. He wrote a sequel to Luke, the book of Acts. You know, Luke's about the biography of the life and ministry of Jesus. The book of Acts is the story of the early church. Luke has known Paul now for 12 or 13 years. He's gone on two missionary journeys, and he accompanied Paul from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. So the things that are going on here, Luke was there. Luke is a firsthand eyewitness to the comings and goings and all that's happening in Paul's rented villa in Rome. Pretty remarkable. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Think of how encouraging this would be for Paul. He had been under arrest for two and a half years by now. He got arrested in Jerusalem. He was taken under Roman protection. He ultimately appeals to Caesar because he thought it was only under Caesar that he would get a fair trial. So it takes two years for the wheels of justice to move for him to finally get to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, remember he had been shipwrecked and all these incredible things had happened to him. Look who greets him. Realize this. Recognize how far away the gospel had traveled in 27 years. Since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel had traveled over 2,000 miles. In just 27 years, there were churches all over the Roman Empire. Paul was about to be greeted by Christians who were the fruit of his ministry that he had never met, that were the fruit of a church that he had never visited. Look at this. It's incredible, verses 15 and 16. The brothers and sisters there in Rome had heard that we, these disciples, were coming and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns. That is 43 miles and 31 miles respectively. That these Christians in Rome, they didn't have cars, okay? They didn't have mopeds or anything like that. This is quite an effort. They sent a delegation out to greet the Apostle Paul. 45 miles 31 miles. Imagine how encouraging this was to Paul. Luke tells us, at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. The Gentile church, the church in Turkey, in Asia Minor, in Greece, in Rome, 
was exploding. Keep that in mind. Just a quote that kind of reinforces this. So, a few years after this book is written, a few years after the events here. So Paul is in house arrest in Rome between 60 and 62 AD, just 27 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So in your mind's eye, between 60 and 62 AD, Paul is writing Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, okay? A few years later, because I'm trying to give you the context of what's going on all over the Roman Empire. So someone who was very hostile to Christianity, a Roman governor named Pliny the Younger. He's a Roman governor in Turkey, and he doesn't know what to do because the gospel of Jesus Christ is exploding everywhere. Temples, pagan temples. Do you know what happened to the pagan temples after a few years of gospel spread? No one went anymore. There was a business an economy built around the purchase of sacrificial animals for pagan worship. Nobody was buying animals. The gospel of Jesus Christ was so effective, so powerful, so pervasive. Trajan, I'm sorry, Pliny the Younger doesn't know what to do. He writes to Trajan. Trajan is the emperor later. Here's what Pliny the Younger writes. Here's how he describes Christianity. This superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ, disciples, they're everywhere. It seems possible, however, to check and cure it, like he was hopeful he could stop it. He writes, it is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had almost been deserted, are now being visited again. Hence, it is easy to imagine that a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. In other words, if I threaten their life and give them an opportunity to recant, hopefully we'll get some people back worshiping the Greek pantheon. But I, the reason I read that to you is this gospel was all over the known world when Paul is writing Colossians, Philippians. And when you see at the end, here's the deal. We take this for granted. This seems normal to us, that the gospel would have spread. You know, we're a post-Christian nation, but we're still living with all of the momentum of the gospel that came to the new world. That was not the case in 33 A.D., a totally different situation. By the end, I, I just want you to appreciate the barriers that, that Paul and the other disciples had to deal with when they shared the gospel and how effective it was. Look at verse 16. Go back to Acts 28. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him like, again, the Jews. What was the goal of the Jews? In 57 AD, the goal of the Jews was to execute Paul. The goal of the Jews was to stop the spread of the gospel once and for all. Their choice gave Paul a bodyguard 
and police escort all the way to Rome that allowed himself to, under the freedom of house arrest, influence the church. I mean, it's honestly amazing. It's miraculous. He was safe, protected, well-positioned. Look at verses 17 through 21. So when he gets there, he wants to give his side of the story to the Jewish leaders. That was his way when he came to an area that he had never been. He would go to a synagogue and he would preach Christ to the Jews who were there. Well, obviously he couldn't get to the synagogue. He's under house arrest, but he has the freedom to bring all the Jews in Rome, all the leaders to him. And he wants to explain to them, I've been falsely arrested. These charges don't have merit. And oh, by the way, let me explain to you the hope of Israel. Look at verses 17 through 21. Three days later, after Paul gets there, he gets settled. He rents this wonderful house. Three days later, he, Paul, called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said this. He said the following. My brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. Paul was in Jerusalem offering a gift. Paul was in Jerusalem to give a gift to the Jewish church there. He was worshiping God. They falsely accused him of bringing him a Gentile into the temple area, which was not true, and of preaching blasphemy, which was not true. That's why he got arrested. Look at verse 18. They, the Romans, they examined me. They wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, however, and so the Roman um, leaders like Felix and Festus, they knew Paul was innocent, but they wanted to curry favor with the local Jews. They didn't know what to do. They keep passing the buck. Verse 19, the Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. He knew that he would get a fair trial in Rome. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people for this reason. To me, this is so beautifully written. For this reason, all that's happened to me, for this reason, I've asked to see you and to talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel. Think of how that's so beautifully said. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Verse 21, they replied, we have not received any letters from Judea or Jerusalem concerning you. See, it was winter. Paul shouldn't have even sailed there in the winter but he did, and his Jewish accusers had not had the chance to get to Rome yet. So these Jewish leaders, they're hearing this for the first time. Verse 21, the Jewish leaders replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. So Paul's getting to tell his side of the story first. He condenses the entire gospel into one sentence. He was there to preach and proclaim what? The hope of Israel. That's why he's there. Verse 22, their interest is piqued. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know. Again, remember, repetition's the key to learning. Luke's trying to tell us something. Look at what the Jews say. The Jews in Rome. We want to hear what your views are, for we know that people where? What does it say? Everywhere. 
are talking against this sect. sect. Over 2,000 miles away from Jerusalem, 27 years later, people everywhere were talking about this. A spiritual revolution is taking place. Look at verses 23 through 25. They're so interested in what he has to say, they agreed and arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. Look what it says. And they came in even larger numbers. Like, like, like their, I mean, like their mind was blown. There was no more capable or articulate communicator of the gospel in church history than this man. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Under whom did he study? Gamaliel, the famous Gamaliel. Large numbers of Jews, their interest was piqued. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Well, what did Paul say to them? They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening. I'm considering that as a new preaching method. There'll be a small intermission in a few minutes. We'll come right back. Maybe Stephanie would be here in about an hour. That would be it. And Virginia. Or maybe only Virginia and not Stephanie. So what did he do? He witnesses from morning till evening. He's doing two things. Explaining the kingdom of God. And from the book of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. What did that mean? So very briefly, what was the Jews' conception of the kingdom of God? Nate already alluded to it. What was the Jewish conception of the kingdom of God that Paul is going in to engage with? The Jews' understanding of the kingdom of God was limited to a dusty land in Palestine. The Jews' understanding of the kingdom of God was that a son of David would rule in Jerusalem and administrate and rule the Jewish kingdom and would declare Jewish independence. That was the kingdom of God. Paul came there and said, your view, my friends, is far too small. It's the kingdom of the Messiah that has come. That's the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual kingdom. What did Jesus say? This kingdom, it's not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom of which Jesus is the head. He's at the right hand of God. He's ruling and reigning. And every single time, a heart is changed. Every single time, a hard heart is changed into a softened heart. Every time someone becomes a disciple of the Lord Jesus, that's the kingdom coming. It's growing. Every time... Someone chooses to live for Jesus Christ. Every time someone says no to sin and yes to righteousness, the kingdom of God has come. And Jesus is the king. I just, I wish I could help you understand the enormity, the magnitude of what was happening. Again, we grow up, we take the gospel for granted. What message was Paul trying to preach. His message to them was that the Messiah, he was asking them to worship, had been crucified. You take it for granted. That seems normal in our context. 
The Jewish conception of Messiah is that he would rule from David's throne. He would defeat Rome. He would bring independence to the Jews when the person Jesus was crucified. What did that mean in the minds of most Jews? What did that, what, what, what did, what did that automatically do? It falsified his qualifications to be Messiah. Like we've said this before. If, when Jesus comes back in power and glory, when the Son of Man comes, what are the chances that he'll be defeated and be humiliated and tortured? What are the chances? Answer, zero. So if someone came claiming to be the Christ, his second coming, and they were tortured and killed, what would that do for you? It would eliminate that person from consideration. That's what the Jews' understanding was. And yet, what was happening? What is the best explanation that the gospel of Jesus Christ was bringing people new life all over the world? When their message was Christ crucified. The best explanation is that it's true. And this is exactly how God is growing his kingdom. Through the preaching of Jesus Christ, the person and work of the Lord Jesus and his rule and reign bring, being brought to bear all over the world. That's the best explanation for why something that should have been discarded immediately was taking over the world. My friends, that's the backdrop. That's the background. That's the historical context to the book of Colossians and Philippians when Paul is receiving messengers from Colossae and Philippi and he's writing letters and teaching them about this crucified Christ and he's sending letters back. We have the privilege. Can you believe we have the letters? 2,000 years later, you and I have the letters that Paul wrote to these new churches where he taught about the risen, exalted Christ. I pray that it's just as amazing to us, just as transformative to us as it was to them. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, a revolution was taking place when Colossians and Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon are being written by Paul. A worldwide Worldwide revolution, a spiritual revolution. A kingdom was being brought to bear, a messianic kingdom with the Lord Jesus Christ as king and his gospel as the mechanism for new life and change. Father, prepare our hearts to hear more about how the Apostle Paul articulated that gospel to the Colossians to the Philippians, as Paul wrote some of the most beautiful, articulate things about Jesus of Nazareth, do in our hearts what you did in those churches. Change us, mold us, help us to love him and serve him, and as we do so, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name, amen and amen.